Please take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Approximately two months ago, we began a careful examination of the Sermon on the Mount. We quickly concluded that Jesus was a masterful communicator. Jesus has a knack of being able to flip the script. He knows how to turn social norms upside down, inside out. Not only do his statements speak against the culture, but they're also counterintuitive. Today, we begin a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus intensifies our level of obedience. It seems that Jesus raises the bar of commitment. The way he does this is by internalizing that which was understood as only to be external. And so, with that in mind, let us focus our attention on Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5, let's begin at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still on the way with him. He may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I'll tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help me to preach. May your word be on my lips. Think with my mind and speak with my mouth. Overtake my body, I pray. I ask that your word not only be found on my lips, but also on the ears of the listeners. Help us to not only speak your word, but help us to hear it. May we not just be speakers and hearers of your word, but we, may we also do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the common words in the Sermon on the Mount is the word righteousness. It's a common theme that Jesus uses about five times. He speaks this word in Matthew chapter 5 verse 6, Matthew chapter 5 verse 10, Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, and finally, Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. This is a common word that Jesus employs in this preaching moment. Jesus says, blessed is the person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Jesus says, because of this righteousness, you will be persecuted. In the verse that precedes our passage, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no entrance in my kingdom. He says at the beginning of chapter 6 that you ought to do your acts of righteousness in secret. And then he says, one of the more familiar verses in all the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, when he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. It seems to me that righteousness is a pretty big buzzword for Jesus. 
And as we've discussed before, righteousness is a two-sided coin. Not only is there declared righteousness, but there's demonstrated righteousness. Declared righteousness is what God has done for us in Christ. Demonstrated righteousness is what we do for God in the power of Christ. When you and I go from no faith to faith, when we believe, turn, and trust, knowing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was placed in our grave, and on the third day, God raised him from the dead. When we realize the good news of the gospel, we are declared righteous. Fundamentally, that word righteous means innocent. We are declared innocent in God's sight, and this innocence is full, it's free, it is forever. And God looks upon us as if we live the innocent righteousness of our Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the good news in the nutshell. This is when you and I realize that it's not because of who we are, it's not because of what we've done, it's because of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ that we can stand forever uh, forgiven of our sins in the presence of God. This, my friends, is declared righteousness. But not only is there declared righteousness, there's also demonstrated righteousness because as followers of Christ, there are certain things we ought to do, there's certain things we ought not to do. There are certain things we should say. There are other things we shouldn't say. So we know that our belief impacts our behavior. Our convictions help to shape our character. And so I say this to you this morning because Jesus is about to begin a section of the Sermon on the Mount where he lifts up six illustrations of righteousness revealed. Six illustrations that would have been common topics of the Pharisees in the first century. And Jesus begins by talking about the proper understanding of murder. He follows that by talking about the proper understanding of adultery and divorce. He follows that by speaking about our understanding of what it is to make an oath. And then he talks about that popular topic of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And fundamentally, and and, and concluding, he says, uh, let me also tell you what it is to love your neighbor. Jesus uses... Six illustrations that find their origin in the Old Testament law. These would have been topics that the Pharisees would have talked about. And Jesus uses the same formula or format. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. It's not that Jesus contradicted the law. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it completely. He came not to teach something contrary to the Old Testament law. He came to give us a deeper understanding of God's law. And so Jesus came and he says on six occasions, listen, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. In our passage, Jesus says, you've heard it said of people of old, do not murder. For anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. When Jesus made that statement, there would have been a hearty amen that erupted from the crowd that gathered on that Palestinian mountainside. They would have said, yes, Rabbi, we've heard this before. We know what you're talking about. We know your point. We know where you're going to conclude. For yes, you are beginning with the Old Testament law, the sixth commandment to be exact. For in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the Lord himself said to Moses, thou shalt not murder. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And certainly, Jesus is referencing the sixth commandment. The Hebrew phrase is a two-word phrase. It's the phrase, lo tirzak. The word lo just simply means no. 
The word tirzak means senseless slaughterings. So God says to his people through the messenger of Moses, he says, listen, I don't want any senseless taking of human life. I don't want any senseless slaughtering in the community of faith. I don't want any senseless murders when it comes to civilization. Now, when God says that, he's he's not saying uh, that that we're forbidden uh, to murder in cases of just war. He's not saying that the government is forbidden to murder in cases of capital punishment. He is not saying that individuals are forbidden from murder in cases of self-defense. There are other scripture passages that speak to those specific issues. So what does God mean when he says, lo, tirzak? What does he mean when he says, no senseless slaughtering? What would be a senseless slaughtering in the eyes of God? Well, I think that we don't have to look very far to see the answer to that question. I think that God would regard most cases of homicide, all cases of suicide, and all cases of abortion as tirzak, as senseless slaughterings. Now, you look around our culture, and in, the, in America today, you realize that on average, there are 16,000 homicides. There are 32,000 successful suicides. And in a given year, there are 1.3 million abortions. I think when the Lord looks at that in our American culture, I think there's one word that comes to the mind of God, and it's the word tirzak. It is senseless slaughtering. It is useless taking of human life. The Lord says that we ought not to just take life from other individuals in a senseless fashion. Now, why would God say that? God would say that. Because God is the author of life. He's the lover of life. He's the giver of life. Apparently in our culture, you're twice as likely to kill yourself as to have somebody else kill you. 16,000 homicides, 32,000 suicides. And apparently in our culture, um, there are 80 times more homicides in a mother's womb than outside a mother's womb because there's 16,000 homicides, there's 1.3 million abortions. You do the math and you realize that before this worship hour is over, there'll be two homicides, four suicides, and 150 abortions that take place in this country. And I think that the Lord would say, Tirzak, senseless, useless slaughtering of human life. God values life. He is the giver of life. He has stamped you with the Imago Dei. He has stamped you in the image of God. Listen, you have value not because you have or used to have bulging biceps. You have value in the sight of God not because you have or used to have a cute physique. You have value in the sight of God not because you run a lucrative business, not because you have accumulated a bunch of accolades and uh, positions of power. You have value in the sight of God because he stamped you with with worth. You are created in the image of God, and you have as much image of God as your friends, as your enemies, as people you know, as people you don't know. Every person walking on the planet is made in the image of God, and God says because of that, they have value, they have worth, they are the apple of my eye, and so God says because I am the creator of all living things, lo, tirzak, no senseless slaughtering. When Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, do not commit murder. For anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. I promise you there would have been a hearty amen. 
That little tagline that Jesus puts on there would have been common knowledge in the Pharisaical world. Because the Pharisees always taught that those who commit murder will suffer judgment. That judgment can be divine judgment from God. It's also going to be earthly judgment. So the Pharisees said, if you're going to reveal your righteousness, don't do anything that's going to land you in a Roman court. Don't do anything that's going to put you in the court system. Because there was an assumption and there was a belief in uh, the religious mindset that anyone who was indicted in the Roman court system must have been an unrighteous reprobate. So if you want to show yourself as not an unrighteous reprobate, if you want to reveal your righteousness, then don't do anything that's going to land you in the Roman court. And one thing that always lands you in the Roman court is murder. So don't murder anyone. If you want to reveal your righteousness, then don't take anyone's life. If you want to reveal your righteousness, then don't have senseless slaughterings. And so the Pharisees would teach that if you uh, do not murder, then you won't come under judgment. If you don't come under judgment, then you won't be in an earthly court. And if you're not in an earthly court, then you won't be condemned into prison. So the way you reveal your righteousness is by don't kill anybody. Now, with that type of logic, most of us, like the people in the days of Jesus, you feel pretty good. Because you think to yourself, I've got a sneaking suspicion I'm not going to kill anybody today. I've got a sneaking suspicion I won't kill anybody. I may want to kill somebody, but I don't think I really will. I don't think I'll go through with it. And so you think to yourself, I must be pretty good because I am going to make it through this day without killing anyone. And so Jesus then internalizes what was understood as only external. He raises the bar of commitment. He in intensifies our understanding of obedience. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. And anyone who does murder is subject to judgment. But I say unto you, when Jesus says, but I say unto you, this is when he's going he's gonna to ratchet it up. He's going to internalize that which is external. He says, but I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the flames of hell. It's at that moment the hearty amen turned into an oh my. Because people said, what did the rabbi just say? What did he just say? Jesus cut at the root of sin, not just its symptoms. Jesus said, it's not just murder, but at the root of murder is anger. And anyone who gets angry at his brother is subject to judgment. Can I just be honest with you? I don't know any earthly court that's going to indict anyone as a, as a criminal just because they only got angry at somebody. There's no earthly court that's going to throw anybody into prison because a wife just got angry at her husband, or a husband just got angry at his wife, or parents got angry at children, or children got angry at their parents, or uh, a coworker got angry at another coworker, or a church member got angry at another church member, or somebody got angry at a boss or a police officer or a coach. I don't know anybody who's going to be thrown into jail just because they simply got angry. And our anger usually is in one of two forms. I mean, either uh, we are like that, that brush fire that ignites in the desert. It's just instant combustion. You know, people, they get angry like that. I mean, poof, they're just angry. And they're intense in their anger. And then there are other people who are kind of slow, smoldering infernos. 
And they could be angry for hours on end, days, in fact, weeks, months, even years. Now, Jesus is addressing people who can be a instantaneous combustion type of fire or the people who's a, who are slow burning in their inferno. But Jesus is not talking about righteous indignation. After all, you and I need to get angry about the things that anger the heart of God. We need to be angry about senseless slaughterings. We need to be angry about Tirzak. We need to be angry about social injustice. We need to be angry about defiant disobedience to the word of God. Those are items that Jesus is not addressing. He's talking about senseless anger. He's talking about anger that's just a fit of frustration. He's talking about anger that where you just get so, um, uh, so upset that you say things you ought not to say. You do things you ought not to do. And later, oftentimes, you regret. And Jesus would say, anyone who gets angry at his brother is guilty of judgment. Jesus does not mean judgment in an earthly court. Jesus means that when you have selfish, sinful anger towards anyone else, you're indicted as a criminal in the heavenly court of God. It's senseless anger. Can I be your friend today? Can I just tell you that when anger gets the best of you, it reveals the worst in you? When anger gets the best of us, it reveals the worst of us. And can I say to you what I say to myself? If anybody could ever record us when we get selfishly, sinfully angry, and then show it back to us when we're sane and calm, I bet that would deter us from being angry anymore. Because once again, can I be your friend? When you get angry, you look like an idiot. When I get angry, I look like an idiot. I mean, have you seen this? I mean, your eyes are bulging out, your neck veins are popping, your, your lips are tight, and you, your face is contorted, and you're just sitting there, and you're a heart attack waiting to happen, and you just, you got steam coming out. It, you just look like an idiot, because when anger gets the best of you, it reveals the worst in you. Jesus says, you think that you're okay just as long as you don't murder anybody. I say, even if you get angry at somebody, you're indicted as a heavenly criminal. So today... You and I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to make it through the day without killing anybody, right? But are we going to make it through the day without getting angry at anybody? Will we make it through the afternoon without getting angry with anybody? Will we make it on the ride home from church without getting angry at anybody? See, Jesus says you got a deeper problem than you realize. Because you thought your righteousness was revealed just by your external uh, uh, reality that in public you've never killed anybody. But what about those things that you do in private? What about those internal things? What about that anger that rises up inside of you? Whether you hold a grudge for a long time, whether you just combust uh, instantaneously, what about that anger? And then Jesus raises the bar again. Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who says to his brother Raka is subject to the Sanhedrin. Now throughout this message whenever Jesus speaks of brother he's not just talking about a biological brother or sister he's not even just talking about a spiritual brother or sister he's talking about any person on the planet for as humans we are brothers and sisters before God so when you uh, say to your brother or your sister another person raka you're subject to the Sanhedrin the Sanhedrin was the 
Jewish Supreme Court. It was the 70-member ruling council of Israel. They would hear cases, but I promise you, they never heard a case where one person was accused of saying the word raka. It's just a word, right? Nobody really knows what the word means. It's an Aramaic word. It's a word that really bears no explanation. Because people in the first century knew exactly what it meant. All Jesus had to say was the word raka. And everybody went, aww. Because this really is a curse word. It's a, it's a foul language kind of word. Um, it's a word that shows contempt. It's a word that, that slices at a person's character. It's a, it's a word that, that indicts a person's personality. It, it slams a person's intelligence. It's, it's a vile word. You and I would tell our children, you ought not say this word. And I promise you that when the holy rabbi, in the middle of his message, said, but I say unto you, anyone who says to his brother Raka is subject to the Sanhedrin, there was more than one person who said to his neighbor, did the holy rabbi just say what I think he said? And the response was, yeah, can you believe that? Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, as I've thought about this and as I've, I've been digging with this, the best I can come up with is an illustration. A couple years ago, I was, um, I was going into the to the Galleria. Uh, I was driving, and you know that in front of the mall, there are those two lanes that go all the way around the mall. Now, if you're not careful, you can inadvertently cut off another driver. And on that day, I innocently, inadvertently, cut off another driver. It's not like I did it on purpose. I mean, I, I never set out to get in a car wreck or anything like that. So it was an honest mistake. Well, whoever it was that was in that other car didn't appreciate the honesty of my mistake. He proceeded to get into the left lane and speed up right beside me. With one hand, he laid on the horn. With the other hand, he extended it to wave at me. Now, I thought he was just going to say, hey, how you doing? And certainly he waved at me, but it wasn't with all five fingers. (laughs) Now, my window was raised. And his window was raised, but I could still tell that he was saying something kind of derogatory about me. I could tell by the way his his expression was on his face. And even though I could not hear what he was saying, I could read his lips. And I think he said something about my mother because I clearly read the words mother. Then what proceeded out of his mouth was something that was so full of contempt, so vile, that I thought to myself, oh my, I can't believe, he doesn't even know who I am, and he's calling me those names. Now, I think that you're probably picking up what I'm putting down, and in the understanding of the first century word, I think what this guy is saying is some form of raka. It's a word that is full of contempt, and Jesus, Jesus says it in his sermon. Oh, my word, can you believe that one? Jesus says it in his sermon, and he says, listen, you've got a bigger problem than you realize, because I realize that some of you have a dirty mouth. I realize that some of you say things you ought not to say. I realize that sometimes uh, you, you say those things, and you don't even think anything about it. You think, as long as you don't murder anybody, that's okay, but you can get into a verbal tirade with them, and you won't bat an eye. You won't think twice about it. And Jesus says, the one who says to his brother a dirty word, raka, is subject to the Sanhedrin. And then Jesus raises the bar again. And then Jesus intensifies by internalizing that which is understood as external only. Jesus says, anyone who says to his brother, you fool, 
is subject to the flames of hell. Now, if your mother was anything like my mother, she took the words of Jesus literally. And, and she told me, don't you let me ever hear you call anybody a fool. And as a boy, I thought to myself, mom, I can think of far worse words than fool to say, right? I mean, you know, and she's, don't you ever call anybody a fool. And I always wonder, why would she say that? And she got it right here from the Sermon on the Mount on the lips of Jesus. Now, this word fool um, is, is the Greek word from which we get the English derivative moron. It's really what it is. And the Greek word for fool is moron. Um, the Old Testament, the, the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And so I don't know for sure if Jesus is telling us to strike the word from our vocabulary. I don't know if he's saying don't ever say the word fool because the reason I say that is because later in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to conclude with a powerful illustration of two guys who built houses. One built a house on rock, the other built a house on sand. And you know what Jesus called the one who built his house on sand? He said he's a fool. In the same sermon, Jesus says, don't call anybody a fool, but anyone who builds his house on the sand is a fool. What? So I don't know if Jesus is striking the word from our vocabulary. This much I do know. I do know that Jesus is saying, not only be careful what you say, but how you say it. Because the person who says to his brother, you fool, is one who says it with such disdain and such disgust. And you really just want to demoralize the individual. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful what you say and be careful how you say it. Because you do know that some words are barbed wire words. They puncture. They stick. They leave scars that last for years. Other people know how to use their words as verbal vomit. That's the best way I know how to describe it. They launch into a verbal tirade and it's only as if they just vomited on somebody. It's a verbal vomit. And Jesus says, be careful. So you got a bigger problem than you realized. You thought, all I need to do is get through the day and not murder anybody and that will reveal my righteousness. And Jesus says, no, listen, you may make it through the day without murdering anybody, but what about getting angry? What about saying something you ought not say? Whether you say it loudly or you say it under your breath. You know, somehow we think if I don't, if nobody else hears it, then it's okay. No, Jesus says whether you say it loudly or whether you say it under your breath. Or not only what you say, but how you say it. If Jesus at that moment would have said, anyone indicted, every hand would have been raised. Because Jesus said, you got a bigger problem than you realize. He goes on. And he says, imagine with me that you're going into a worship service and, and, and you've got the lamb under your arm. You're toting the sacrifice. You're ready to go. You make your way into the temple court. Uh, you walk up the temple steps. You get into the court of the priest. A priest meets you there. He grabs the lamb from your hands. He prepares it for the sacrifice. You get to the point where you're about to place your hands on the head of that lamb as if to signify that your sin has now been transferred from yourself onto somebody else. You're going through the religious uh, purification of forgiveness. And in that moment, Jesus says, it flies across the screen of your mind that somebody has something against you. Well, you don't say, that's not my problem, that's his problem. That's not my problem, that's her problem. No, Jesus says, you leave the sacrifice right there at the altar. You leave the worship service. You go and be reconciled to your brother, then together come back and worship the Lord. 
Now, once again, Jesus is so counterintuitive because as a minister, um, I tell people, come to the worship service. Jesus says, get out of the worship service. That's completely opposite, right? I mean, I say, no, y'all come, y'all come. And Jesus, no, get out, get out. Because if you've got a problem, you need to get out. And most ministers would say, Jesus, don't let them leave without first putting some money in the offering plate, right? I mean, then they can go, right? But, but Jesus, no, no, no. Listen, if you got something against somebody else, get out of here. Because hostility hampers holy worship. And only reconciled relationships will lead to righteous worship. You know, every day when we get ready for Sunday, I pray a similar prayer. I say, Lord, fill the house. May the house be full. I pray this for every service. I pray it for 8 o'clock. I pray it for 9.15. I pray it for 10.45. Lord, fill the house. Then it dawned on me. You can have a full house and not a spirit-filled worship service. It's possible to have a full house and not a spirit-filled worship service. And Jesus is saying, you've got to deal at the root of your problem. You've got to deal with the issue. You've got to deal with this thing called anger, this issue of sin, because I'm telling you what, holy hostility or hostility will hamper holy worship. And then Jesus says, when your adversary is walking with you, settle the dispute quickly. Even if he's taking you to court, try to settle the issue before you get to court. Because if he hands you over, you just might be found guilty. The judge may give you over to the officer. The officer may throw you into prison. And you may be in debtor's prison for the rest of your life until you pay back the very last penny. I don't know if this passage can be used to say that Jesus is telling us Christians should never go to court. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying is, when there are unreconciled relationships, settle the matter quickly. Do it before it gets out of hand. Do it before there's litigation. Do it before there are irreconcilable differences. You do it before it gets so far beyond any type of hope. You settle the matter quickly. I've had individuals come to me as a husband and wife. They're at their each other's throats. Uh, uh, individuals who have problems with coworkers or church members or other individuals. And they'll tell me the situation, the scenario. And then they'll say, Pastor, what do you think I need to do about it? And usually, um, what I try to do is I try to flip it around on them. And I say, what do you think you need to do about it? And if the person is seated there who is the one doing the offending, he typically says, you know, I think I'm going to give it some time. If God gives me the opportunity to make things right, I'll take it, I'll, I'll do it. But otherwise, I'll just let time heal all wounds. And I say to him, that sounds logical, but it's very unbiblical. It makes no biblical sense. In fact, the Bible says, you settle the matter quickly. Don't let the sun set on your anger. You deal with it quickly. You deal with it decisively. You do your best to remove all uh, uh, barriers so that reconciliation might be achieved. You do your best so that true, genuine reconciliation can take place. Why do you do that? Because that's what God has done for us in Christ because Jesus came in the nick of time. The apostle Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son 
born of a virgin, born under law, to redeem those under the law. Jesus came to help us with our sin problem. Why in the world is Jesus turning the knife in this passage? Why is Jesus showing us our sin over and over and over again? Why is Jesus indicting all of us? Because Jesus is driving us to our knees and propelling us to the cross. In verse 20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you have no interest in my kingdom. In the first century, Pharisees were believed to have been Sure shots into heaven. If anybody was going to get in, the Pharisees were going to get in. So Jesus is saying, who's the holiest person you know? And please don't say yourself. (laughs) Who is the holiest person you know? And Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to be greater than that person's. And when we're honest, we walk away shaking our heads and we think, I can't live up to that. I mean, the reason I look up to that person is because that individual is so righteous. And Jesus says that pales in comparison. Jesus is identifying sin in your life and in my life to drive us to our knees and propel us to the cross of Calvary. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to give us victory over sin. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to give us victory over anger. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to give us victory over resentment and bitterness and frustration. You can't just say to Jesus, this is just how I'm made. This is just how I'm wired. I can't help it. Jesus says, yes, you can, because I made you and I'll remake you. I came to give you victory over your past. I came to give you victory in your present. I came to give you victory in your future. I came to recreate you. I came to give you victory above victory. Because this morning, I got to tell you that I heard an old, old story of how a savior came from glory. He gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood atoning. Then I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him and all my love is doing. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. Jesus came to give me victory. Jesus came to give you victory. Jesus came to give you victory in your marriage. Jesus came to give you victory in your life. Jesus came to give you victory in your finances. Jesus came to give you victory in your relationships. Jesus came to give you victory in your parenting. Jesus came to give you victory upon victory. Oh, victory in Jesus. So Jesus raises the bar of commitment. Jesus internalizes that which is understood as external. Why does he do this? He does this to drive us to our knees and propel us to the cross of Calvary. Because Jesus says, you need my righteousness. You need the innocence of Christ to be credited to your account. And all you have to do is ask and God will give freely, fully, forever to anyone who comes. So this morning, won't you come and receive victory in Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. We thank you for who you are and what you've done, and we thank you for how you show us how in need we are of you. If there's someone here who's never accepted you by faith, I pray for their salvation today. If there's someone here who struggles with anger, greed, resentment, I pray that today 
they will lay that at your altar. If there's someone here who needs a church home, I pray that today they'll find family in this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.